Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we're going to be talking about brands and the subconscious advantage and how to put your best foot forward when going to market in your business. It is my pleasure to welcome Leslie Zane to the show. Leslie is a passionate leader who believes that our potential for success is limitless. She is a brand expert whose work goes far beyond mere branding. She teaches brands how to grow quickly and substantially through a revolutionary concept she calls the subconscious advantage. Business leaders have long been taught that to achieve a competitive advantage, your brand needs to be better, cheaper, or faster. But this assumes that brand choice is a rational, conscious decision, and it isn't. Nicknamed Miss Question by her business school classmates, Leslie's endless intellectual curiosity fueled her search for the elusive key to changing customer behavior. She began her journey at blue chip companies and then struck out on her own to found Triggers, the first woman-owned brand consultancy, with the express mission of increasing top-line revenue for her clients consistently. Over the past 25 years, the company has developed a track record of accelerating growth through its unique expertise in changing brand preference at the instinctual level. CMOs often joke, that the major difference between their work and those of other strategy firms, a hundred times their size, is that their approach actually works. Leslie received her BA from Yale University and her MBA from Harvard Business School. A TEDx speaker, she has been published in the Harvard Business Review, Knowledge at Wharton, MIT Sloan Review, Forbes, Ad Age, Barron's, Newsweek, Scientific American, and much more. It is my privilege to welcome Leslie Zane to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. So I'm very excited about our conversation for a number of reasons, including the fact that you are all about branding, as am I, and we just take it from different vantage points. And I think that this conversation is going to be a really great one for everybody. So why don't we start the conversation by hearing a little more about your background and how your path has evolved. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. And I'm fascinated by what you do too, by the way. So I grew up in uh, Forest Hills, New York to a regular family. And uh, from when I was a little girl, I was always fascinated by communication. Even in high school at a young age, I was making the posters for all the different events whether it was the um, to back, back to school night or the uh, annual show or sports, I was the person who made these posters all over school. And those were the best. So you're very creative and you're really into promotion and getting everybody involved, it sounds like. I was, I was. And I was always trying to think, what's the best way to get them to want to come to this event? And so I was thinking even, even at a young age, I guess I was kind of a, a, a born marketer, although I didn't, I didn't know it yet. And I, I did have kind of two sides to my personality. 
I guess they call it today left-brained and right-brained, but I don't really think that's accurate. It's, um, you know, part of my, my orientation is more analytical, and then the other side is more creative and visual. And uh, at Yale, I double majored in both, in art history and in economics. And those, you know, fulfilled both sides of my personality. And I think marketing is very much that way. It brings together kind of a more business analytical side and allows you to be creative at the same time. So you took these interests that you had and and you really combined them into a wonderful career pretty early on. You were a senior executive in marketing and branding starting very early in your career. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? I started out at Bain and Company, actually, that was my very first job out of college. And that was more on the sort of strategic, very analytical side. There wasn't at that time a lot of creative work that they did. And uh, today they do more in the world in the world of brands, but, but not so much back then. I actually worked on teams with Mitt Romney and George Denny and John Halpern, Michael Farmer, um, some of the, 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 gr- the great names of some of the founders of Bain & Company way back when. Um, so wow. it, was, it, was a, it was a fun time. And I left Bain to, to go to business school, but my thought in leaving was very much that I loved strategy, but I was really fascinated by the consumer brain and how people make choices. And since that wasn't a focus back then at Bain, um, that's really why I, I left. And after business school, then joined a whole bunch of different uh, blue chip marketing companies like uh, Johnson & Johnson and Revlon and Procter and & Gamble and, and sort of made the rounds uh, in the marketing organizations of those, of those great companies. And you were doing that in the 1980s, right? And so when we scroll back and think about what these companies were in the context of those times and the commercials and the go-to-market strategy, I'm a few years younger than you, but not all that much younger than you. And so, I mean, I was definitely of an age where these companies, I mean, they were the creme de la creme among brands. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your experiences working with those companies? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, those were known as, and I think still today are known as some of the greatest, you know, brand companies. They have these amazing legacy brands uh, at at all of those firms, and uh, I learned a lot. I was mentored by great people, and I got great experiences. But I was also able to see patients, and I think being an employee and being a young woman. At that time, it was really hard to have a different perspective. So I, I realized again pretty early on, uh, although I kind of went from company to company for about 10 or 12 years, I, I realized that I was not going to be able to really implement some of my own philosophy and my own vision of how brands should be marketing themselves uh, if I didn't you know, set off on, on my own. So we're going to get back to, in a second, your decision to go out on your own and sort of what you liked and what you didn't like at the decision inflection point that you made that determination to go out on your own. You know, I think everybody in the audience has a pretty good sense of what a brand is. 
But for someone that really is responsible in helping companies drive their brands and message around their brands, how do you define a brand and how it works? Like how is a brand it's most effective in terms of doing what it's supposed to do? I love that question. (laughs) And I love it because I actually think that if you ask different people, you'd get uh, different marketers, you'd get very different answers. And that's actually part of the problem. I think that most people today still think a brand is your name, your logo, uh, maybe the shape of your bottle, maybe even who uses you. Um, Sometimes brands think of themselves as a reflection of their users, but I don't think of a brand as any of those things. To me, a brand is a collection of accumulated memories that get sort of glued to your brand over time. And those can go way back as far as childhood, as early as childhood for a lot of brands if, if they've long time. So to me, a brand is a collection of associations, positive and negative, in our memories, stored in our subconscious. Uh, and that is really what a brand is. It, it doesn't exist out in the marketplace. It doesn't exist on marketplace shelves. It doesn't exist on Amazon. Brands exist in the minds of consumers. And that is really how we need to be thinking about them because it's also how to think about you know the health of your brand. Well, and that's how it works, right? I mean, I think that when you have, when you look at what some of the strongest brands are, and we'll get into this more as our, as our conversation continues, but, you know, I look at it as a brand lawyer from the frame of reference, as you mentioned, which you said a lot of people look at it, but like it is a slogan, it is an actual name. Those are sort of the clinical definitions of it. But what makes a brand tick is exactly what you mentioned. And I'm really looking forward to getting into the conversation a little bit more about what your approach is to helping companies with their branding. But we are at at the point in your story where you said that you had made the decision after working with some amazing blue chip companies for a number of years, you had made the decision to go out on your own. What was it at that point in your career that you loved about what you were doing? And what was it that made you dislike the path that you were currently on at that time? What I loved was the people that I worked with. I loved working on great brands. I loved being inside. I loved um, being able to see an initiative through from beginning to end to not just develop the strategy, but to execute it fully and to see what happens uh, to do the implementation. All of that was terrific. What I didn't like so much was that I saw that a lot of marketing initiatives were very hit or miss. And having sort of been schooled at at Bain & Company, you know, and it's probably part of my personality as well. I think I was just sort of born this way. I always want to make things better. I always want to improve business. I want to drive revenues and drive growth. And a lot of things that I was seeing at these great companies, uh, even these blue chip marketers, was that um, many initiatives did not achieve what they should have achieved, either in growth or return on investment. And so that's why I really felt there was a tremendous opportunity to do things differently. 
and to leverage what what my my instinct was telling me um, was really going on, which was something much deeper that these companies weren't weren't capturing, uh, and that's why I, I set off to to create my my own firm. So would love to, you know, take a look at this point at some interesting anecdotes, stories you may have about your experience. We'd love to hear about the inflection point. You know, what moment do you really see as the turning point that helped accelerate you continuing to be on the path that, um, you know, would, would take you, launch you in, into your own business? Um, any interesting stories for the audience? Absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you one um, funny story uh, that was very much a turning point for me. Uh, when I was at a, a great baby company, I uh, was working on the baby shampoo business. And I saw that uh, we only had moms in advertising, moms and babies in advertising. Um, we had not yet featured a dad in, a, in an ad. This is in the early 90s. And so I recommended something revolutionary. <laughs> Let's put the first father in a TV commercial uh, for the baby shampoo. And my bosses thought I was nuts. They absolutely did not understand. I was saying that uh, childcare is changing, that fathers are getting more involved. Uh, and that women love to see a father tenderly taking care of a baby. Uh, it's it's very emotional. Um, it's very evocative. It's very provocative. Uh, will stand out in the most positive way. Uh, and they really felt that that was it, it didn't make sense with this what they were seeing in their research. Uh, the research showed that it was really still moms who were primarily buying these products. And so they didn't, it didn't square with what they were seeing. And what I was really talking about was something that didn't show up in research. It was, you know, what you see when you, you know, a woman walks down the street and sees a, a father taking care of a baby or wheeling a baby stroller. There is that, just that moment of connection that, that women feel. But it, again, it's something that doesn't show up in research. So I kept um, advocating for this, and it was very tough. And I had a performance review that year that um, said in black and white, Leslie is too passionate about putting fathers in advertising. Oh, my and God. This is, an executional <laughs> concern. this is an executional concern, not a strategic one. And that was like a knife in my heart because, you know, I... I thought of myself, if I thought of myself as anything, it was as, uh, you know, somebody who was very strategic. But the, the good news is that after a lot of back and forth, they father finally did put the first father in uh, a baby shampoo ad. And guess what happened? The sales uh, skyrocketed. Sales, <laughs> yep. Sales took off. Uh, it was the highest scoring uh, ad in the company's history. Wow. So I was, I was finally vindicated. <laughs> wow. And when you, th you know, and it's funny because I remember the commercials that you're talking about. And I do remember when diversity of all forms started to be introduced into these sort of consumer products commercials, like the one that you mentioned. I mean, I, I think your idea is brilliant, especially in the context of the time 
in which you came up with it because you're absolutely right. Up until then, it was a very conventional sort of mother and baby um, and, and conventional, like other advertising was very conventional in whatever way it was defined as conventional at the time, right? I think it's a brilliant idea. So was that when you decided to go out on your own? <laughs> it, it was definitely, I, I didn't go on my own exactly then, but I would say that was a definite, um, it was an epiphany moment on many levels. One, it just showed that it was going to be difficult for me to get my ideas through. Secondly, it was a, you know, a really important because I proved um, my, my own instincts that you know, there, was, there were these codes and cues beneath the surface that companies weren't tapping into uh, that were really important and, and could actually you know, trigger much stronger results. Uh, but that, that that did not show up in research studies and were not on this had to look much deeper to find them and and so it was you know Im important in in both of those ways and it gave me the confidence that I was on the right track but I knew I needed to you know go out on my own in order to really fully uh, realize the potential of of what I was talking about and thinking about well, and that's a great segue. You mentioned triggers, and that happens to be the name of your business. And so we would love to hear, first of all, how you coined the name and what the meaning is behind it. I think we all have a, at least a, an intuitive sense as to what you're getting at with that name and how your philosophy may differ from maybe other companies and organizations that purport to advise clients in the way you do. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I, the, the philosophy behind triggers is that there are shortcuts to growth uh, that companies can take and that these subconscious shortcuts, so to speak, exist in our minds and they are there to be leveraged. When we go up against the conscious mind, we actually, we run into a lot of barriers. You know, the conscious mind is aware that it's being marketed to. It's very rigid. It's resistant to change. And so you can try to persuade, you can try to cajole, you can offer financial incentives, and you can get a, a person to a consumer to react and, and buy something. But it's probably going to be pretty fleeting. It's not going to be, you know, a long-term change in brand preference. And that's because our conscious minds uh, are very skeptical and they push away sales uh, efforts. In contrast, the subconscious is actually much more malleable and it's, it's on automatic. So it doesn't, it's not aware that you're coming. So ideas tend to seep in there without our realizing it. And so it turns out that if you market to the subconscious, you can actually get ideas through much more easily. Uh, a trigger, what we call a trigger, what we refer to as a trigger, is something that's very specific. And that is that there are these familiar codes and cues that are packed with meaning. Uh, an example would be a snow-capped mountain uh, in the bottled water category. That is uh, something that we would refer to as one of these very um, powerful codes and cues. And when we see them or hear them or smell them or touch them, they ignite our memory 
and we're drawn to them. And that is the definition of emotional connection. So the, the philosophy behind triggers is that you can actually be using these ideas that are already somewhat in our memories. And if you latch on to them, they, they become a way to sort of piggyback on things already in the mind um, and enable your brand to grow faster, more easily, and with less resources. Are there certain times, I mean, that's fascinating and it com- makes complete sense. Are there times when companies should really be trying to adopt a framework of conscious marketing? Like you had mentioned that there, there are certain consequences to sort of going the conscious marketing route. Are there times though that it makes sense for certain companies to go with a conscious versus a subconscious marketing strategy? That's a great question. Um, I I can't really think of a, a reason to do that. You know, I guess I suppose if you wanted to have a short term bump in sales, then yeah, go put out some coupons, do a buy one get one. You know, that's fine. But that's not uh, going to give you a long term increase in your revenue. What you want to do really the holy grail of marketing is instinctive brand preference, where your brand becomes the dominant instinctive choice in a category. And that means that when somebody goes to, you know, let's say the orange juice shelf in the supermarket, and they they just reach for the same brand every time, and they do so without thinking, they're, they're on automatic, they're on autopilot. That moment of reaching for your go-to brand that is like a financial annuity, right? It just keeps on giving over and over and over. That's where you want to get your brand to. And and that's really the focus of of our work is getting brands to be the instinctive dominant choice uh, in a category. Well, and your business tagline is, um, we are experts in elevating brand perceptions. What does this mean to you? And how do you go about working with your clients to elevate brand perception? So the key to growth, brand growth, which is what we're all about, is to elevate brand perceptions by adding a lot of positive associations. So there are two uh, very simple rules that we have about how brands grow. One your brand has to have more positive than negative associations. So think of it as a ratio of positive to negative, and you can actually quantify that. And second, your brand has to have a larger footprint in people's memories. It needs to touch more things. It needs to span more territory. It's like a game of monopoly. You have to own more real estate in the mind than your competition does. If you do both of those things, if you have the largest brand footprint and you have more positive than negative associations, your brand will grow and it'll grow at an accelerated pace and be the dominant instinctive choice versus the competition. So our time is going by really quickly and we're nearing the end of our first segment of our of our chat. I think as we're getting ready to to close out a couple of things I'd love to ask you. First of all, 
What was it like in the beginning years of going out on your own? You clearly had a wonderful strategy, wonderful experience under your belt. Any interesting anecdotes for our audience from the first few years of being out on your own? I would say, yeah, absolutely. I would say that something that uh, I'd like to just pass on that I think could be helpful to people is I started out initially just sort of being a, a consultant. And I found that people didn't necessarily think that anybody, one person is smarter than than anybody else. It wasn't until I actually took the triggers and turned it into a process it, it always was a process. It always was my process, but I wasn't really promoting that. So on, until I did that and I gave clients, potential clients, something very tangible to latch onto uh, with a step-by-step approach, that created, I think, a lot of comfort that we could do this again and again and that you know, if we, if we help them, it wouldn't be a random thing. And again, it, it was a process that I always had in me. It was what I was doing intuitively, but it wasn't until I laid it out very clearly, that is when the business took off. And, and I think that that probably has, um, has application to really anybody uh, who has a business, whether they're you know, attorney at a small law firm or a large law firm. If you try to sort of give a structure to how you do things. I think it gives people a lot of confidence. That's easier than telling them you're, you know, making them think that you're smarter than anybody else, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you, Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it, it totally makes sense. And I look forward to delving in a bit more in our, in our second segment, um, of, you know, with regard to strategies and, and so forth. So as we wind down the first part of our chat together, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with listeners and where can they find you, social media and otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. So my final thought is just that really everything is a brand um, and has the potential to be thought of as a brand because whether it is, you know, you yourself personally or the company that you work at, or the the new business that you're launching, I think thinking of it as a brand that needs to be marketed to people's subconscious, you know, is helpful in order to accelerate its growth. You can find me at lesliezane.com. You can find me at triggers.com. And uh, I love meeting new people. So absolutely reach out and connect with me. Leslie, I've really enjoyed the first part of our conversation, and I'm so excited about the second part. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Christina. I look forward to it too. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Leslie Zane and that you will join us next week for part two of our chat. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.